heard the name Terrence Fisher and I looked at that on the screen and I watched all of the great gothic horror films and other films he's tied in with. The silly thing is, I looked at it and thought, what a great name for a horror film director, Terrence Fisher. I've said this to my friends, I'm sure they look at me funny. Of all the film people from any era, from any group of films, from any type of position, the only one I ever wanted to meet was Terrence Fisher. And I got to meet him. Born in 1904, Fisher grew up at sea because his father had died young. That's where he got his adult upbringing, coming from a Christian science family. Went to work after he got out doing store designs, I believe in windows for department stores. He would go to the movies and decided he'd like to be part of that. He started late. He said he was the oldest third assistant clapper boy in the movie industry. He got in the editing rooms, didn't edit what you'd call major league features. As a matter of fact, his background was the kind of Gainsborough cheapos, because Gainsborough was the name of the film aficionado's time. Oh, the Gainsborough look, but a lot of Gainsborough was not very good. This was quote a quickie time. This is, we have to make so many British films in order for the American films to come into the country. Fisher served in World War II. I don't think he saw combat. I figure he was involved in the film industry. After he came out, again, he was a film editor in the 40s. He was at rank and he got into the directors. It's kind of start out for people who wanted to be directors. They picked up people within the company. They maybe gave him a film, maybe gave him two films like Colonel Bogey, and then see if they had it in them to become a director. Was Fisher starting in the late 40s. He was also one of the oldest rookie directors around. Somehow or another, he ended up with exclusive films doing the hammer, low budget stuff. He did a lot of them. He moved around with them. He did fantasy oriented ones like Stolen Face, the four-sided triangle and Spaceways. There were essence of what he was to be in all of them, but they were simply too cheap, too black and white, too confined. If you'd look at them and not knowing what's coming, they'd say, that was the work of a, a journeyman director of the time. And I always took the term journeyman actually as a compliment. A journeyman knows what they're doing. Maybe they aren't making great imaginative classics, but they make movies, and they know how to make movies. Fisher continued with Hammer Exclusive. They hit the period in the mid-50s where was television going to destroy Hammer Exclusive film production companies, the cinemas. He worked in other companies in black and white. He made a film with Pat O'Brien. He always said, come 1956, he got Curse of Frankenstein because he was owed a film by Hammer. Anthony Hines said, I hope you truly didn't believe that. Fisher was my only choice to direct this kind of stately, well done, colorful film. Fisher had So Long with the Fair, which is one of those stories that ended up being used to kissing the vampire. A person is there, and suddenly everybody claims that person was never there and doesn't believe them. It was probably his major film of the 50s. He was giving co-director credit. I don't know how you co-direct a film, but Hammer was aware of this. They knew he probably was the best of the directors they were using, with the exception maybe of Val Guest. They never considered Val Guest for this type of period film. They considered Terrence Fisher. It wasn't owed him. He was the man for the job. He came on, he wasn't new, so he understood the setup of Bray Studios. Had no sound stage to speak of. 
He had reconverted rooms. For the first time, he was dealing with people like production manager Bernard Robinson. Anthony Hines come over as producer. He had worked with Hines before. He had not worked with Anthony Nelson Keyes, the associate producer, who also suggested bringing Jack Asher. Again, I don't believe Fisher had ever worked with him. It was the coming together of a certain group of talented people, not youngsters, all well-grounded in the British film industry. Most of them had never worked in anything even approaching a subject matter like Curse of Frankenstein. As close as that would be Todd Slaughter, and nobody would want to have claimed they worked with Todd Slaughter, but he was the horror master of the UK. Then we get Curse of Frankenstein, they get the television star, the television star who would do plays in the BBC that would empty the pubs, Peter Cushing. And Fisher was a quiet man, but Cushing respected him and loved him, and they worked well together in this. They seemed to know what, even at this early time, what each one of them wanted out of the other. And Peter Cushing could be a tough bit of work. He didn't often respect people he didn't think knew what they were doing, which meant that Terence Fisher had to overcome that initial, who is this guy? I've never worked with him. And it didn't take very long before he knew as Val Guest called Terrence Fisher, he was an old-time pro. He'd been directing for 10 years and all this other background. And like all the rest, when Curse of Frankenstein was done and it came out, nobody expected this. Terrence Fisher did not know. He said, I had no particular affinity for horror films and gothic horror films. I didn't know suddenly it had totally changed my life. He said, I found, finally, what I was good at. The next year, Horror of Dracula, and Fisher would say later, everything worked in that film. He was not one to storyboard, but I've seen eight or nine pages where he hand wrote out his description of every scene, what would appear in the scene, how he would consider shooting it. His assistant director, John Perville, said Terry would know two or three setups ahead of time what he wanted. He'd finish this one, move on to the next. Val Guest had the whole thing storyboarded, but Peveril said it was good enough that I knew what the next one was coming because I was the one that Terry talked to. He did not give instructions to the camera operator. He did not look through the camera. He talked to John Peveril, whoever his first assistant was, and explained what he wanted. He was so quiet sometimes people thought that the first assistant director or the director of photography was directing the film, which is a story Francis Masters once said, oh no, I was directed by Jack Asher. But in this case, Fisher passed it on. He was not demonstrative, he was quiet. His style of directing was like a lot of technicians. He wasn't telling his actors what to do, what he expected. He expected they knew what they were doing. He expected they'd read their scripts, they knew what was coming up. He'd say, show me what you've got. They'd do their one or two rehearsals. He might say, pick something up or something down, maybe do this a little different, but he expected they knew what they were doing, and British performers at that time knew what they were doing. When you work with the crew, it hadn't gotten to the days of Hammer was, who's the latest cute, busty actress they're gonna make the lead? You get Hazel Court. Hazel Court had years, and all the rest all came together. He's on the Dracula. Everything works, every scene works. Joe Dante, the director, said, it's the only movie I've ever been to in my life where in the final scenes, where Van Helsing and Dracula are battling, the people in the audience were screaming. This is Terence Fisher's ability to set up his camera because he was always accused, oh, he never moves his camera. When I met 
amicus producer Milton Subotsky in 1977 at a convention that Fisher was at. I asked Milton, why didn't you ever use Fisher? Oh, we talked to him, but he does move his cameras. Yes, he moved his cameras. Back he even sometimes used handheld camera. He never moved his camera simply for effect. He moves his camera for a specific purpose to achieve a specific look. One of my favorite scenes on a film I'll mention more on, Brides of Dracula, is a deep focus shot where the Baroness is coming down the steps in the background. In the foreground is Peter Cushing. Fisher's camera is moving slightly, bringing the focus in on it, and it's like you're watching something out of uh, Citizen Kane and Greg Tolan. Fisher worked in these dinky-ass little sets. He joked, I put my camera where we could get our butts up against the wall. But he knew what he could achieve out of those shots. And when Horror Dracula was finished, Tense Fisher's career was set. In 1958, 1959, 1960, he directed three films every year. That was kind of unheard of. And these were no longer these cheap old black and whites. These were Revenge of Frankenstein, The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Man Who Could Cheat Death, going out with Paramount. Next year, you've got Columbia and Stranglers from Bombay, Universal with the absolutely gorgeous mummy. And then Columbia again with the two faces of Dr. Jekyll. I've never been a big fan of the original Karloff Mummy, which my wife hates me for, but everything that's good about a mummy film is pulled together in the Fisher. If it wasn't for Brides of Dracula, it's the most beautiful film Hammer ever photographed. The greens and the blues and Jack Asher's that they actually went over to Shepperton to shoot the sets in the sand and the stone that when they're bringing out Carasser, the mummy's character. Again, he's shooting much interior work, everything throughout the Bray Studios, the famous French windows, which curved out onto the back lawn at Bray. That's where the mummy crashes through. It's staging of scenes like that. He smashes through. He comes forward. He's like a, a machine. He's not shuffling, pulling his feet. And this son of a bitch is dangerous. He can kill you and he can kill you in a second. You don't have to drop over dead of a stroke and allow Lon Chaney Jr. to find you and catch you. But he's coming at Cushing and Cushing is doing his Errol Flynn leaps over the table and he's blasting with a shotgun and the squibs are going off, pushing the stake through and Fisher has just got this lined up. The camera is moving a lot, but he, he knows the shots that are going to come together. He knows how they're going to be pieced together in the editing room. He was not one later on to spend much time in the editing room because for better or for worse, he didn't shoot much more than he needed. And Tony Hines often said, you know, we probably could have done a little bit more with some of these scenes, but Terry didn't give me any more coverage. It was going to look like what Terry wanted to look like. And as an editor for 20 years almost, he knew instinctively how it was going to come together. And that's the difference then between, was he a journeyman? He was not an auteur because I don't believe in the auteur theory, but even if I did, he didn't have that control. He was given a project, he said, I didn't have much input to scripts. I sold them once to script meetings. I'm gonna give them the best movie I can give them. But that doesn't mean he didn't look at the scripts, judge how he's gonna put it together. He knew what he had to deal with at Bray. He didn't have any grandiose plans of, I can do this or that. I got this room, I've got that room, I've got this stage. How can I pull it together? If it was a Jimmy Sankster or a John Elder Anthony Hines script, they also knew the strengths and limitations of Bray, and that's what they'd give it to him. And they said, we knew Terry was going to do a good job. 
The mummy is wonderful. He finished that year. He made The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, and that is a very love-it-or-hated film. The Wolfman Quince, the writer said Fisher didn't know what he was doing. Fisher said there wasn't a person in the whole film that was worth a damn. And he's talking about the characters, not the people who made the film. Michael Carreras said, I wanted Fisher. I wanted to work with him. I think there's nothing wrong with the film except nobody wants to see it. Columbia didn't know how to handle it. AIP picked it up. That's AIP. In the early 60s, they weren't going to get behind it, even in the sense that Columbia was. Made Michael Carreras not the flavor of the month at Hammer then. But Fisher steps right in in early 1960 to his best movie. It may not be the most thoughtful, which is Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. It might not have the most depth of thought and feelings, which is Frankenstein Created Woman, but it was the film that you look at and say, God damn it, this is a hammer gothic movie. This has got everything. This has got Peter Cushing. It's got David Peel, who no one had ever heard of, except that Tony Hines saw him in some television shows. Fisher had no input into the casting, but he pulled it all together. He had Jack Asher lighting, like Jack Asher, unfortunately, would never light again. He photographed those with blues and reds and the sets and the dressing that Bernard Robinson gave him. I can't imagine Fisher would walk in during the day and just look at this and say, I've got everything at my hands. I probably not knowing at time, I will never have this much to work with again. And now there's no release from this life, which isn't life or death. And I know I shall have to do whatever hideous thing he asks me to. There is one release. Story was disjointed. Marianne would have had to have been a simpleton moron to do some of the things she did because they messed around with the script and took away scenes that needed to explain an explanation of why people did what they did. Oh yeah, I just saw him kill his mother. Of course I'll marry him. But caught up in the story, Peter Cushing was at the absolute epitome of his game. You have an ending that, if you think about it, isn't that exciting. But it's the way Fisher pulled it off with the help of Cushing, the leaps to the windmills, the pulling down the shape of the cross. It was during a period when Hammer could afford to shoot night for night. Instead of trying to pull this off day for night and you're seeing the sun and the trees and the clouds in the background. It's dark, it's blue, Bernard Robinson's windmill, he pulls it down, Fisher shoots down, and there is Meister writhing in the sign of the cross and collapsing. He shoots that all from a long shot, no close-ups, until Cushing runs down even then. It's not really close up. That took a lot of planning on Fisher. It probably no way described it in the script quite the same way, but Terrence Fisher said, this is how I want it to look. It could have been easy to have gone way overboard, but he did not. And I saw that film in 1961. I liked it so much, I sat in the theater and watched it a second time. I didn't know what Hammer films were, but when I did discover what they were, I still remember that film, probably over any other film I'd seen up to that point in my life, and I was 21 years old. Fisher again did three films in 1960. I mean, he was the top of the game with Hammer. He thought he had a long-term relationship. He did a Robin Hood movie. He moved on to Curse of the Werewolf. He did a wonderful job on it. Didn't make a lot of money, but the whole story arc builds through, and again, that's John Elder Anthony Hines giving this stuff. He did not deviate often. He didn't pull the old 
uh, John Gilling story. Well, I got the script, but I had to rewrite the whole thing, and, blah, 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 and I redid everything. And I love John Gilling, but Fisher said, there's my script. I know my script. We talk it over. I look at my brushes. I know what I have to do within those areas. By God, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my shots up. I'm going to pre-plan them. I am going to move my camera, but you're not going to be aware of it because I'm not playing games with you. Just to show you how clever I am. And the last part of that, the chases around the rooftop are just wonderfully staged and edited. And up, down, up, down, up there, up there, running on the ground. Fisher had to plan really way ahead of time, every cut, because they were shooting at night. If you're shooting at night on any film, you're probably playing overtime. Instead of the normal latter-day hammer crowd of five people wandered in off the set, there were dozens, if not a hundred people down there. This was an epic story with not epic money. I don't know if he actually had written out a plan, but you kind of want to believe he either had a didactic memory, but he knew how everything would piece together, every angle. I assume it's in the script, but I've read the script and this is Terrence Fisher's staging of that, right up to the scene where the poor werewolf is crawling up there, he's exhausted, he's terrified. And in that little enclosed area, and he faces his father and the bell is moving and it stopped clanging. He's moving with the bell. And then he's shot and he redoes the cartwheel into the back and Fisher moves on to his face. There's so many ways to do these. Most of them would be acceptable. A handful would be awful. An even smaller handful would be memorable. And this was memorable. You watched him, you saw the tears, you saw his father pull the robe over his face. And I'm thinking, wow, I saw this as a kid. The complaint of the Curse of the Werewolf is it is too long to get to the werewolf. It's too slow going. The build-up to the characters. I'm 12. I don't remember thinking that. Maybe the hipsters of today and the younger people are much cleverer than I was. I certainly were back in 1961. But I don't remember for one second not totally be caught up in this sad, sad, sad story. There was no happy ending anywhere in this. The young bride at the beginning, the horrible husband dies young. The young mute girl gets raped and then dies in childbirth. The son is cursed as he's born on Christmas and the background of his birth. He finds love and then he loses it all and ends up just dead in the bell tower. It is the great tragedy that Fisher ever directed. The watchman has a silver bullet. Get it and use it. Use it on me, father. You must use it, do you hear? You must use it, you must. After Curse of the Werewolf, and really they didn't have the grosses in yet. There's no way of knowing that it was or was not going to be a hit because it was filmed at the end of 1960. Fisher would not work for Hammer until the end of 1961 and Phantom of the Opera. It was a beautifully done film, well photographed. This was the love story that Fisher always claimed he wanted to make. He said, I want to do a wonderful Hollywood style love story. The rapport between Heather Sears and Edward D'Souza, when they're sitting in the cab, there's a real warmth. Looks like I'll have to take you home. Thank you for a lovely day. The first of many I wouldn't want to miss, eh? <laughs> I think I just got to inspect the arnish. 
Apparently they shot it the night before, the rain had messed up the, the shooting and they were having a few drinks and they're feeling great. They had to reshoot the whole thing the next morning. It's cold, starting from scratch. Yet Edward D'Souza said when I saw it, it looked like we were falling in love. And it was cold and rainy and we did not have the feelings we had the night before, but Terrence Fisher made sure that we sense what the characters are going through. I don't know why Fan of the Opera wasn't a bigger hit in the United Kingdom. It was a big hit in the United States. Uh, Universal couldn't have been more happy. Yes, there was the typical battle with the censors, and you gotta take out some of the hunchback stabbing the rat catcher in the eye and bits and pieces here and there. Maybe they expected something different. Hammer made its money on the Universal films once they got their portion on what the UK and that brought back, and it simply didn't bring the money back. Hammer always claimed, well, we had no problem with Fisher. We didn't blame him for this. I asked Fisher's daughter once. I said, what did Terry think about this? He wouldn't work for them for almost three years. And Terry and Fisher was hurt. He said, I don't think I should have been blamed for this. They claimed it wasn't this but suddenly they had nothing for me. I'm going to give you a new voice. A voice so wonderful that theaters all over the world will be filled with your admirers. You will be the greatest star the opera has ever known. Greater than the greatest. And when you sing, Christine, you will be singing only for me. Maybe they weren't doing the classic gothic films that much, but Fisher had done television such as Robin Hood. He'd done the Robin Hood movie. He could handle action. He could have handled one of the pirate films or something along those lines. I asked Tony Hines once for 1962, why didn't you offer it to Terrence Fisher? Why did Don Sharp? He says, oh, I don't know. Uh, maybe Fisher was also more shooting on another film, which I suppose is possible. But up to that point, I suspect Hammer would not have thought of anybody but Terrence Fisher for this kind of film. But Tony Hines once said, we had no corporate policy except that dictated by the majors, the people who put up the money. We didn't have much money in the bank. We did what they were told. I don't know how maybe it works back there. Curse of the Werewolf that didn't done well, but he did not work again for Hammer until 1963. He worked in Germany. He made a Sherlock Holmes film there. Was Thorley Walders and Christopher Lee as a tandem. He found it a really rough situation because he said, one day my assistant director spoke perfect English. The next day he didn't understand the word I said. He and Thorley Walders once danced down the street in West Germany thinking there's no business like show business. The character actors and other people would lock themselves in their rooms until the producer produced the money. Otherwise they weren't gonna act. When he was near death, Thorley Walders would visit Harry at the hospital. And he said, you better get out of bed or Mr. What's-His-Name who produced the Sherlock Holmes film is coming to get you. So we gotta get back to work. He did a Lippard, at least one or two of the Robert Lippard black and whites. Stuff like uh, the horror of it all, which had moments of Terrence Fisher, but it mainly had moments of, I got three or four weeks, I'm in black and white, and this isn't Bray Studio, this isn't Hammer, this is Shepardton. But they brought him back in 1963 for The Gorgon, which, again, they're such beautiful films. And it wasn't Jack Asher, but if Jack Asher was A, Michael Reed was A.1. His lighting in that was extraordinary. 
The Gorgon has this laughable Gorgon, laughable now, not at the time. I know people who just about had a heart attack at that. It worked in its period. But the story, again, is another total tragedy. The young man dies, his girlfriend dies, the father dies, Barbara Shelley dies, everybody dies. Now there's no the hero wins in the end and they go off in the sunset. All they do is their decapitated Megaras laying on the floor and everybody has passed on. The music of James Bernard is just mystical. It's like you're in a different world. Sadly, this film did well for Columbia, and Columbia at that point had been releasing a lot of their black and white hammer films. They weren't getting the Gothic Wars. I was going to Universal. I suspect at some point said, okay, we bought into Hammer and part of Bray Studio for films like Revenge of Frankenstein. How about giving us a Revenge of Frankenstein once in a while? So they got a double feature of The Gorgon and Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Tony Hines once wrote in a memo saying, we can't do any more films like The Gorgon. We lost money on that. I don't know what the setup was, but it ended up costing them more than they realized back. Fisher in 64, again, worked in black and white films. That was his one hammer film between 1961 and 1965. And then 1965, I don't know if Terrence Fisher had stayed healthy, he would have done at least one film a year for Hammer to the end of Hammer. He started out in 1965, they finally got Dracula back. They got Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Christopher Lee was back. He said, my agent was always going for a percentage of the film. They finally gave it. In probably over 20 years, I've got $500, $5,000. Doesn't matter, it was nothing. It's like his agent said, you're gonna get what you get paid up front. The rest of it, you're not gonna see it. But Terrence Fisher was back. There's an incredibly, again, long lead up to when Dracula appears. But it's, again, a feeling of doom building up to it. Wonderful Bernard Robinson sets. Again, Michael Reed with lighting as wonderfully as could be lit in those situations. And Dracula appears, he doesn't speak. We get into the argument, oh, there weren't lines written. Yes, there were lines written. But he was like a character who was dead from the last film and he was even more undead in Dracula, Prince of Darkness. The resurrection scene at almost the midpoint where Mr. Kent is drugged down, serving clove, wants to bring his master Dracula back to life. He hauls him up. You've got all these religious icons around, markings on the wall. He does it like he's performing a religious ceremony. He's like he's performing a birth ceremony or reading a death ceremony, everything is laid out, the knives, the dust is poured in in a certain way. He's hauled up by his ankles. And in a scene which even in its edited version, I can't believe got through the British censors, he slashes the throat, the blood splatters down into the dust, the mist comes up out of the sarcophagus, and finally Dracula's hand. It was totally quietly, slowly staged, Clove moving around, Clove laying everything out, Clove preparing himself, Clove preparing the body, Fisher moving the camera ever so slightly. How many ways you could have brought, could Dracula just rose up out of that? Instead you have the mist coming in like a spider. The undressed hand just crawls out of the sarcophagus. And someone pointed out too, because we're always wondering how they get resuscitated and brought back to life, fully dressed. 
in the background, his clothes are laid out. So I guess the implication is that Clove would dress his master, which I had not noticed until someone pointed this out recently. I must kill him. He is already dead. He is undead, Mr. Kent. He can be destroyed, but not killed. The censors let a lot more through than I suspected they ever would have let through. Where's Charles? You don't need Charles. <laughs> it's changing times, I suppose. From that point on, Prince of Darkness moves like a bat out of hell. They rush to where the wonderful Andrew Keir character is, that's the father, Shandor, and it builds the end and the fight on the ice, and here's where we get the problems with when you shoot nighttime scenes during the day. You watch the clouds going by and the green grass and the trees, but if you're watching it and you're watching Fisher, and the cameras are blasted away, and you've got the guns blasting away, you got Susan Farmer saying, why don't you shoot him? You're no good, my dear. And then you see the running water. How many times can you stake a vampire? Because there's variations on that. This would always be with Hammer. How are we going to get rid of the guy? He's going to die. He's the most inept vampire lord ever. He's going to stumble or fall or hit his head on something, or do something wrong. Because the film has to end. And the Dracula films, unlike the Frankenstein films and the others, always seem to end on a happy note. The hero or the heroine end up with doing the hugs where Fisher did the Dracula films well, but when he did Frankenstein, that's when Terence Fisher, if he was ever going to be called an auteur, that's where he'd benefit. He couldn't be an auteur because he couldn't choose the actors except in limited cases. He suggested Charles Gray for The Devil Rides Out. He suggested uh, Freddie Jones for Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Normally he was handed somebody like Susan Denberg, who was at that time running with the Polanski crowd in London, would come in so hungover from drugs and alcohol accordingly that he had to deal with her. He would take her into a corner every day and slowly go over a part with her. He'd go over the dialogue. He was incredibly patient with her. I mean, he could have exploded on this. You know, who are you giving me this girl? She doesn't know what she's doing. Instead, he knew this was his starlet. She was young. She was inexperienced. I'm going to not embarrass her. I'm going to take her off, and we're going to go over her part together. And he brought a wonderful performance out of her. It was dubbed. There's talk about who did it, but it's irrelevant because so much of her role is in her face. His face is Christine the Deformed Girl as she shuffles around and is tormented by the three young bloods. It's later the Christine who jumps in the water and kills herself when she sees her lover protect her honor and go to the guillotine just like his father did. Cushing and his assistant Thorley Walters, they don't know the connection to their young helper and Christine and they transfer the soul and then it just, it grows sadder and sadder and sadder. The soul of the young Hans guiding Christine, you must get your vengeance and the final vengeance on Derek Folds. And I love the final scene. They're at the water. There's Cushing in the grass. And she just looks at him. Basically says, I'm sorry. You know, and jumps in the water. And Cushing turns and walks away. And that's where Terrence Fisher is not directing a cheap film. He's not directing what he had to do, that he had to keep to a certain style. This is Terrence Fisher saying, this is how I'm This is a terrible tragedy. And at this point, Hammer was going to offer Terence Fisher 
whether it's intentionally or not, whether Anthony Hines had more say-so because of the Hammer, Seven Arts, 20th Century Fox, but there was a Terrence Fisher film set eventually for every year. In 1967, The Devil Rides Out. Some people consider Terrence Fisher's greatest movie. My God, the goat of Mendes, the devil himself. It's well acted as usual. Charles Gray and Mikada, I'll not be back, but something will. It's lines like that, which is Richard Matheson, by the way. The film is so beautiful. I know it's not Bray Studios. In some sense, this is the kind of movie that Hammer could only have made moving to bigger facilities. Fisher had worked all over the place. He always felt his greatest comfort at Bray because he was among friends. One of my favorite pictures was still taken. They didn't know it was being taken. There's Fisher on one of the sets of Frankenstein Created Woman. Standing next to him is Arthur Grant, the cinematographer. Tony Nelson Keyes is sitting there with a big grin. They're talking. Bernard Robinson, the set designer, with his little hat on and his cigarette. And four old friends who've made some of the greatest movies ever made are just sitting there talking. It would be the end of Brave Studios for all of them. And they all moved on, and sometimes they would work together again, sometimes they wouldn't. But it was like a family being torn apart. But Fisher didn't let it hold him back. I had asked his daughter once, Mickey Fisher, and he said, why didn't Terry work more in those gaps leading up to these Hammer films? She said her parents talked about it and they couldn't prove it, but she thought that Hammer would tell anybody who approached them, can we use Terry Fisher? No, he's on the contract. Now why they would have said this and kept him from getting work, I don't know. So how accurate is it debatable, but Terrence Fisher thought it, but he didn't hold grudges. He loved what Hammer had given him, so when they gave him things like The Devil Rides Out, it was a bigger budget. It was like over two times the budget of The Brides of Dracula was only made you know, seven years prior. And he took what was given to him. He had Arthur Grant. It might not have been Jack Asher, but Arthur Grant was up there. His films looked wonderful too. The Devil Rides Out, when Tony Hines finally saw it, thought it was terrible. He said, this is going to need a lot of help with the music. But he said a little judicious editing and a solid music score. And I thought it was pretty great. And later on, he even said, I think Terry's greatest film with The Devil Rides Out. And what he got out of Charles Gray in that film. And Christopher Lee as the hero. Lee and Fisher, I think they liked each other well enough. They've been together so long. The old joke was Lee would go up there, pretend like he was handing Terrence Fisher a fiver for close-ups. And everybody would see that and laugh and say, hey, Terry, could you give me a close-up on this? He said, Fisher didn't give him again a lot of direction, but he knew what I could deliver. I knew Terry was going to really do a great job. I had absolutely no lack of faith in him. There were directors I couldn't say the same about. After that, he wasn't to know it was to be a failure out of the country, but it was a big hit in the UK. He had actually started in 1968 doing pre-production on Dracula Has Risen From The Grave. It's no secret that Terry liked to imbibe occasionally. He wasn't a blind drunk, but after a good hard day's work between films, he'd go out and have a few down at the pub. He walked out in front of a motor scooter of all things and broke his leg. Some people say he got hit by a car. Other people said he got ran into by a scooter. Regardless, his leg was broken. However far he was into, Dracula has risen. A former cinematographer, Freddie Francis, who had also done 
a Frankenstein film, even when Frankenstein was brought it in, directed it. It was a wonderful film. It made me a Hammer fan. How Fisher would have handled it differently, I don't know. I think he would have handled the love interest between Maria and Paul differently. I thought the male lead was a stiff. He tried hard, but I thought Veronica Carlson was absolutely adorable. Had so much talent that if there had been a British film industry for very long, could have had a long career. I know Veronica said she was closer to Freddie Francis and Terry because the very next film that Terry would do when he was up and about was early 1969 and Frankenstein must be destroyed. And we're back into the area of what I think Fisher must love, the tragic, tragic, tragic endings all his Frankensteins were falling into. There just was never a happy moment. There was a really happy moment in Frankenstein created woman. There were certainly no happy moments in Frankenstein must be destroyed. It moves from darkness to darkness. Cushing had gone from almost a sympathetic, slightly Sherlock Holmes character, working with his Dr. Watson, Thorley Walters, and Frankenstein created woman. And suddenly, with a script by two new script writers, Anthony Nelson Keyes, associate producer at Hammer for many years, and Bert Batt, who not only being one of England's best first assistant directors, also was Terry Fisher's first assistant director of choice, saying, let me do it, Governor. And that was his first and only script, but Terry was well enough to come into this. It didn't require a lot of on-location work. They went out to an area, I believe, called Scratch Wood, which is near the Elstree Studios, where this was to be filmed. The rest of it was on a standing set on the back lot. Otherwise, Terry was working on interior sets with his leg as it was. He wasn't super old, but he had the body of an older man by then. He made the darkest, most thoughtful film Hammer would ever make. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Every possible nice thing you would have thought about Baron Frankenstein, a little bit from revenge, though not a lot. Evil of Frankenstein, he was just indignant. He was almost a nice guy at times, and Frankenstein created woman. He was the epitome of the shit that Anthony Hines envisioned Baron Frankenstein as, and Frankenstein must be destroyed. How they came up with the idea for this, I don't know. It makes me wonder why I didn't write more, but it simply didn't happen. It builds and builds the stealing drugs, being blackmailed by the Baron to help him with his experiments to get the brain. This is where we encountered the unbelievable Freddie Jones, the second actor that Fisher over the years went out of his way to say, he was my choice. And Freddie really appreciated Terrence Fisher. To be honest, the work with Terrence Fisher, you couldn't demand too much of him as a director because as a personality, I don't think he could give it to you. But you give him the proper actors, he could guide them to where he wanted. Fisher may not tell you exactly what he wanted to do, but in the end, you're gonna be doing exactly what he expected you to do. He'd give you the little poke, look, could you try this? Change this word a little bit, emphasize, move them around on the floor. There's a reason why other directors, talented directors, made similar films for other companies and Hammer, but we're talking about Terrence Fisher. His films were better. Demanically, they might have been the same as some of the others. His staging, such scenes like when the water pipe bursts, where the body was in the dirt, the water main burst. This is when Veronica Carlson shows 
that she could have been a wonderful actress if given a career. Her hysteria, the lady in the neighborhood trying to poke her nose in, the arm flapping in the water, that's Terrence Fisher. He knew, he set that scene up. There's so many ways you could do these and so many ways that you wouldn't remember later. But if you've seen this film, you remember that. You remember her hysteria. You remember the water. You see the body starting to float and flap as it comes out of the dirt. And Terrence Fisher, probably there were lines that said something. In fact, the body gets exposed. How do you handle the body being exposed? That's when you have a director in his mind knows how he wants it to look. He knows how it wants to come together in an edit. Anthony Hines again said that he wished Terry had given him more material at times, but you weren't going to play with Terry's material too much because there was nothing to replace it with. You could shorten it or lengthen it, but you couldn't change it. You couldn't put an alternate scene or a different angle on it. I mean, just the ending of it is a typical Fisher stage fire scene. But again, I venture, I am the spider and you are the fly, Frankenstein. If any actor ever deserved an Academy Award nomination for a Hammer film, it was Freddie Jones and Frankenstein must be destroyed. The depth of his sorrow when he realizes who he is, the depth of his sorrow when he realizes his wife not only doesn't know who he is, but is terrified of him. And he's come back to a life he doesn't want to be part of anymore. And he certainly doesn't want to be part of anything to do with Frankenstein. Those are some sad, sad endings. You've got Veronica Carlson dead, stabbed by Peter Cushion. A rape scene that appears to have been a last-minute addition. Veronica Carlson says it was a last-minute addition. Fisher has said they caught it, came in and handed him extra pages. Peter Cushing said, I think they maybe had a little more time than just walk in and shoot it that day because you still have to, to set it up. I don't think it was planned for. It was out of character, although at times when the Veronica Carlson character is so numb later on, it could also fit in that she was totally beaten down by the rape because rape is always more about power than it's about sex. As we know, the Baron, not immoral, basically amoral. We know he'll use sex, but it's incidental to his belief in life and what he wants to do. If he was able to use it to hold down and make her obey his orders, bring me some coffee, he would. He had took no qualms of turning the knife on her when they're on the steps. And that was, by the way, a handheld camera, showing that Fisher was not, oh, he'll never move his camera, and pushes her into the knife. It's ended in 69. Terrence Fisher wasn't super old. He was still in his 60s. He actually was signed to direct Lust for a Vampire, one of the follow-ups to the Konstein films in 1970. That's a great what if. You had Terrence Fisher directing. You had Peter Cushing starring. Suddenly you had Jimmy Sangster directing for his many skills. Directing wasn't one of them. And you have Ralph Bates, who was more of a wonderful character actor than a star. Fisher could do the interior scenes, but he couldn't do anything on location. His leg by that time simply didn't allow it. He didn't work again until 1972. He broke his leg again sometime during this period. Royce Gage really liked Terrence Fisher. Michael Carreras kind of wanted to see if they could achieve the classic hammer look on a budget. Therefore, they sold the idea of Frankenstein, the monster from hell to Paramount and the Avco Embassy for the UK. Very low budget, very little exterior work, lots of small sound stages. 
Fisher come on to this and his wife, Marg, I don't know if Terry can do this. He just physically can't move. He's on his cane, he's moving rough. Royce Skaggs looked at it and he thought, are we gonna do this? Can we get insurance on it? But Skaggs babysat him. And Terrence Fisher built strength and strength. The story was self-contained. The Baron was a bastard again. We had an actual monster, kind of a sad character, an actual human. It wasn't the best and not the worst of the Hammer films. I think particularly the Frankenstein films, but it was Cushing was his Helen Hayes wig. It was the young Shane Bryant, again, who Hammer was grooming. You had the silent Madeline Smith and all the wonderful character actors that Hammer can pull together. I liked the film a lot. Not a lot of people saw it, but it was kind of the end for Terrence Fisher. He simply couldn't work. It's sorry to say, but if Terrence Fisher had been healthy enough to continue the work, his style was passe. He was of a time, he was of a period. There's nothing wrong with that. James Whale, in the late 40s, his films would not have looked as of the early 30s. He could have worked in television, I think. But theatrically, of The Omen, The Exorcist, and what was to come, it was not his style. He was of a different generation. Royce Gaggs offered him one of the episodes in The Hammer House of Horrors. It's the one that Don Sharp directed. He knew, number one, that Terry wasn't healthy enough. He knew he couldn't get insurance on him. But he knew that he respected Fisher and it gave Terry Fisher hope and happiness at a time when he was dying. And it made him feel good. In fact, even as early about 1974, I had written the Michael Carreras early on with my magazine. And I'd mentioned about Terrence Fisher. And I said, you probably can't get insurance on Terrence Fisher anymore, can you? And he said, no, I'm afraid we can't. So at that point, he couldn't have worked if he wanted to. The irony of that, I have the paperwork, Michael Kravis' personal files from To the Devil a Daughter. And he has a list of potential directors that could have done it. And Terrence Fisher's name was on it. So no matter what he might have said then, it was hard to get Terrence Fisher's name out of the mix. But no, his time had passed. He, he could not have worked in the film industry of the mid to late 70s. I met Fisher for the first time in 1977 personally. I may have mentioned at the beginning of this, he's the only film personage at any part or any level I ever wanted to meet in person, and I got to meet him. We went to the Horror League convention, it was uh, November 1977. There was guests like him and James Bernard and Dave Prowse was there after just doing Star Wars. Melissa Stribling was there the first time that Terrence had seen her since Horror of Dracula and they laughed and Milton Sabotsky was there from Amicus to tell me again that Fisher didn't move his camera. Meaning, sorry Milton, you really never watched any of Fisher's films, did you? And Terry and I would sit in the bar and it was like Hammerland part two because leaning on the bar was Michael Ripper. And Terry said to me, shouldn't Michael be behind the bar? And I thought, oh, that's a good point. Sometime during that period, they were showing a 16 millimeter film for the crowd of The Curse of the Werewolf. And I'm sitting next to Terrence Fisher, and I'm sort of pinching myself. Literally say, son of a bitch. And he's talking, you know, Oliver Reed never did anything better. And I wish I was younger and I could remember the things he said, but I was just jaw drop in awe. Terrence Fisher's explaining a movie to me. And I'm just, we finish, we're sitting there. They start the next one, which is Just Frankel's El Conde Dracula. 
We're kind of, well, let's watch, see what his Dracula's like. And he's kind of liking it. But the zoom lenses are driving him up a wall. He wasn't adverse to using one, but he very seldom used it. He finally turned to me and said, Dick, if he uses one more zoom lens, we're leaving and going to the bar. Next second, zoom! He stands up, I stand up, we went to the bar. Michael Ripper was still in the bar. Prior to me meeting him, I had done the first in-depth American interview with Terrence Fisher, Little Shop of Horrors number three. Shortly after that, Cine Fantastique, Harry Ringo would do a feature on him, and they would also do an interview, which, fun story about the interview, was done by my friend Chris Knight, who at that time was the British correspondent for Cine Fantastique. He gets there a little bit early at Rose Cottage, which was Fisher's home. Morgan's wife lets him in and says, well, Terry's upstairs taking a bath. Why don't you go up there and just do the interview sitting on the edge of the bathtub? He said, that's exactly what I did. I got my tape recorder sitting in the edge of the bathtub and Terry's just blushing away and washing and, and talking about the films. <laughs> uh, I think he moved in later. They went downstairs, but that was Terrence Fisher. He was another one of those that denigrated himself. Oh, I was just a working director. I just had the script. But then later on, he knew what he was doing. He understood who the Baron was. He understood the essence of the character of Dracula. I think he was always much more happy that he was given the Frankensteins later on than the Dracula films. But we ran our interview in 73. He said, oh, this is magazine in America. It's almost like an amateur magazine, but he liked it. And I met him in 1977. I've still got these little blue sheets of paper with his very flourishy, sprawling handwriting. He would write me letters. Back later on, when my friend Keith Dudley took me to the British Film Institute, and they had archives that Fisher's family had turned over. The first thing I opened up was a stack of my letters to Terence Fisher. He had actually saved them. But we wrote back and forth. He filled me in on different things. He was working on a biography with Alan Frank, the British uh, genre author. I went over in 1980, again to a convention. It was the first Hammer convention at the Kenilworth again. Michael Ripper was still at the bar. And my wife, Carlo, was at the bar with him. Hammerland Part 2.0. All we needed was Terrence Fisher. Unfortunately, Terrence Fisher was dying. He had cancer. Nobody was telling him. He'd lost a lot of weight. And like that story I told earlier, Thorley Wallers would go up there and tell him dirty jokes and saying, you better get out of bed or the producer of the Sherlock Holmes film is going to come and kick you in the butt. I called him. And my wife had always wanted to meet him and talk to him. And I said, Terry, can you talk to Carla? She doesn't always like these films. And he said, put her on. And she said, Carla, you will learn to like these movies. And Carla said, yes, Terry. Shortly after that, he died. Terrence Fisher, Mario Baba, and Alfred Hitchcock all died in the same short period. And Fisher often said, I would have liked to have met Hitchcock. We worked at the same time similar film, I would have liked to talk to him about his films. In my mind, I think Alfred Hitchcock would have liked to talk to Terrence Fisher. When Terrence Fisher died in 1980, I did an issue of Little Shop of Horrors, number five. On the cover of it was my favorite photo ever of Terrence Fisher on a film set. He's standing on the set of the Gorgon, and he's doing this. And I look at that and I say, I freaking love that but I wrote to everybody I could think of who was around, 
welcome new Terrence Fisher, I wrote to his wife. She says he was my rock, and with him going on crumbling. It's the first time I got Jack Asher to ever reply to one of my misses. I wanted to interview Jack Asher, the lighting cameraman, but he wrote three pages talking about Terry, talking about their films. Thorley Walters wrote, I love telling jokes. I love Terry Fisher. Tony Hines, who very seldom at that point wrote, Terry was one of my best friends. He understood what I wanted to do. I never had any problems with Terry. He never argued. He would come to the script conferences if he was required to, but he just as soon got on and shooting the film. Everybody I could think of who had worked with him replied. He was the rock at Hammer. Focus puller Harry Oak said, Terry didn't often speak directly to people. He's always talking to his first assistant director, but he wasn't afraid to come over and ask how something looked. He was such a nice person, he was quiet. There is something to be said, you can make a good movie with everybody hating your guts. XTL known as good movie, and everybody hated Leslie Norman's guts. People did not like John Gilling, but he made good movies. But I can't believe if you're making a film on a tight budget with no money and limited resources, that if you freaking like the director and respect the director, you're not gonna have a better movie. All things being the same. And everybody who works with Terrence Fisher, in their heart of hearts, respect that he was the best director they ever worked with on those films. If I run into young people, they don't know what Hammer is, let alone who Terrence Fisher was, I might pick out a film to show them. Now, obviously my favorite would be Rise of Dracula, but I want them to be involved in it. Rise of Dracula is more mood. Horror Dracula, you have leaps across tables, you have strangling, you have fights, you have crosses, you have people being staked, you have blood and fangs. This they can relate to more in the 21st century and maybe some of the latter-day Hammer films, which were wonderful, but they're quiet, sedate, very much driven by the mood. Horror Dracula has his mood, but not as much as, say, the Gorgon. But I will say, look at this. This man had nothing to work with. This guy was using a camera that looked like a suitcase. He had very small areas to move in. He had a script he had to stick to. He couldn't play around. He couldn't rewrite. Look at those images. Look at the lighting, look at the colors. Watch the movement of the characters. Watch how he moves the storyline along, that you stay with it. Is his camera frozen? Now look at it. You just saw it move, didn't you? You just saw a handheld fight scene if you're watching Frankenstein Creative Woman. At a time when virtually nobody in England among the older directors was using handheld. Some people complain about it, but it was Terry saying, this is what I need. This is classical filmmaking. This is of the era of the studios and back lots and fix things. This is not Mickey Rooney saying, let's go out and put on a show. This is professionals. You want to be a professional. You want to know every aspect of what you're doing. Not so you can tell people their job, but so you know what their job is and know what you're getting. Terry had paid his dues. He knew everybody's job there but never, ever inserted himself into it unless he had to. Watch from him, learn to respect your coworkers, learn to respect what they do, understand what they do, understand your placement of actors. When you don't have any place to go, 
Where do you put them to maximum results? Terence Fisher is from 1950 to 1970 the gothic horror film director. It's just like you might talk about John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, George Romero. That's how they talk about Terence Fisher. If you're enough of a film scholar, that's how they talk about James Whale. It's James Whale, it's Terence Fisher, then you move into people like John Carpenter and the group to move on. And Terence Fisher's name, I hope it never fades away. I hope people constantly talk about it. I want him, wherever he is, to know you weren't just a journeyman. You're the best. Jack Asher, like the vast majority of people associated with Hammer, started out in the 30s with companies like Gainsborough and that. He was an operator. He worked his way up in probably the late 1940s. They call them lighting cameramen in the UK, director of photography, whatever it is. Didn't have anything to do with the camera, they lit the sets. He worked into the 50s in a lot of different things. He was a group that came the Hammer about the time of Curse of Frankenstein. Basically, the Hammer style was born literally all at once. Anybody who was going to be the Hammer look, the Hammer feel, came together in that one film. Jack Asher came over with Anthony Nelson Keyes, who, you know, associate producer. The normal Hammer film was shot in six weeks. An equivalent American film, Roger Corman, would be shot in barely two weeks. Asher tried to use different things that had been taught you weren't supposed to use during that period. You're supposed to photograph a certain way, but he decided I'm going to light my films differently. Probably is when it began the argument, oh, Jack's too slow. It is why he didn't work that much for Hammer from 1960 on. The old, it's too slow, the time, money, it's never made sense to me. He was always on budget, the films got done on time, 
talking about Asher style, Arthur Grant ended up doing the vast majority of films from 1960 on. Arthur Grant, according to, I don't know if it was Len Harris or Harry Oakes, who was the folks puller, would sort of light, if you had three people at a table, he'd light them all together. It would look fine. But if Jack Asher had three people sitting at a table, he might highlight each individual, then pinpoint lights around the background. And as been talk, he did move the lights himself. Uh, union rules did not allow it in those days, but he made sure they were pointed where he wanted. He told me once that the epitome of what he was trying to do in color lighting, but using techniques of black and white, was the horror of Dracula. Tony Hines sent him a letter saying how gorgeous the film looked. I've never seen blues again emphasizing in a film before or since. The hues were just incredible. You just get caught up in this. It was Hammerland. That's the term for Hammer from, say, 57 through the end of 1963. You had your standing sets. You had the same people through the end of 61 because there was a big breakup then because Fan of the Opera did not do well in the UK while it did wonderfully all the rest of the world. After Horror of Dracula, he went right into Revenge of Frankenstein, was basically lighting the same film for a different story, and then The Hounds of the Baskervilles, and then The Man Who Could Cheat Death. To me, his second most beautiful film was the early 1959 in The Mummy. The color schemes, again, in that are just off of the chromatic scale. They're freaking great. They're beautiful. Well, he had photographed right towards the end of 1959 the two faces of Dr. Jekyll, but the epitome of Jack Asher, everything he ever tried to do visually on the screen was the Brides of Dracula. Everything that is perfect about Hammer is in the Brides of Dracula. Give me back that key. But, Madame, I... You have taken a key from my room. Give it back to me. Do you hear me? The blues, the greens, you can talk the red look of Hammer, but Hammer was blues. Hammer was greens. Hammer's the lighting. You look in the sets. There is a scene in Brides of Dracula, and in ways it makes me think of Greg Tolan and Citizen Kane. Obviously, Terrence Fisher did not have RKO's money and sets and that to do this, but Peter Cushing is walking in to the set where he finds the Baron's Meister's mother. He's kind of walking along and almost in deep focus in the background. You see Marquita Hunt descending the steps. It's in focus and out of focus, kind of at the same time. The colors, the lighting, Asher keeps it all perfectly framed. And you see Martita Hunt coming up behind Peter Cushing. And that to me is the epitome of Jack Asher. This is not one-shot Bodine type movies or Lee Rollum Sholem or that. They took time at a time when American films, even color ones, similar budgets, might shoot in eight, ten days. They would take six weeks to film these. The care they put into it, but that scene, or when Cushing first walks into the Meinster Chateau and they're in the main hall with the very, very familiar soundstage. There's the long rectory table down the middle. There's the great griffins that were designed by Bernard Robinson, soon to be wife, Margaret Robinson. Their sister case, which was made out of all uh, paper mache and 
The actress, Andre Melly, said once she would go up between shooting and maybe they're out to lunch and she just wandered around and look at these. They said they looked as good in person as they did in the film. And I'm leaning on them and the technician said, don't lean on those, this is paper and shade. You're gonna go straight to the floor. But you wonder how much time Jack Asher had, even designed like The rigging was there. I also wanted to, to, to think about it at night. Does he plan? He knows basically by that point how many rooms he's got, what the studio stages look like, where his gantries are. Uh, does he plan his lighting scheme beforehand or does he walk in on the set and say, okay, this is the way I'm going to do it? And I have no idea which one it was. I should have asked him, but I didn't. There is one release. I never knew because so many of the people were dead before even I came along. And I came along in this in 1972 to find out, did Asher work with Bernard Robinson? Did he go on the set? Uh, did he look where he placed his lights? Terrence Fisher always joked, I put my camera the only place I had room to put it. I didn't have room to design a lot of different things. There's where the scene is going to be shot. There's the set. I can put my camera in the corner. There's a great picture from Kiss of the Vampire where Len Harris is plastered against the back of the soundstage when the <laughs> soundstage is just a little room, it was a house, and everybody's plastered against the wall. And oftentimes, that's what Asher had to work with. The gantries for the lights and that virtually never moved. The gantries were up, the lighting cables. Bernard Robinson was planning one, two, three films ahead. They couldn't be taken down and put up when you're talking about lighting a room. Hammer really didn't have a major stage until the first Dracula. Frankenstein was done in the house, little bitty rooms, and even that stage wasn't that big. It was long, it was narrow. You'd always see the staircase on one side for Dracula, you'd see the staircase on the other side for Brides of Dracula. Uh, they moved it around, they changed the look on it. Terrence Fisher, the director, the quintessential power behind Hammer, as far as giving us the look that we know Hammer to be. He trusted Asher, to be honest, he trusted all these people. He did not interfere with people he felt knew what they were doing. These were professionals. He went back years with these people at Gainsborough and the other studios. He probably gave an idea, like say, this is where my camera is going to be, and then Jack would go to work. Jack Asher had some sort of frozen back, as I'll describe. He couldn't turn his head and look up. He'd have to rotate his whole upper body to look at where a light is, where a shadow was going. And I often wonder if this so-called claim he was too slow had something to do with him looking around. Now, Asher would look through the camera and he'd say to Len Harris, the operator, let's paint with five brushes here now, Len. When I talk to people like Lynn Harris and that, these are gentlemen, they wouldn't say so-and-so was better than so-and-so. He wouldn't come out and say, Asher was a better lighting cameraman. Harry Oakes, the folks puller once said, well, Jack got paid way more than everybody else. Uh, it may not sound like a lot, but 100 pounds in 1958 was a fortune. That was five and a half times more than I made as the focus puller. Could that have had something to do with it? Because at the time, Tony Hines writes to Jack Asher, your lighting is gorgeous. Also started to come the, you're too slow. The films were getting more expensive. There's absolutely no record that the films went over budget based on Jack Asher. I don't know 
what figures Tony Hines ever talked about. But Asher had not worked from the beginning of January in the Brides of Dracula. It's not spoken of, but in an interview with Don Sharp, the director of Kiss of the Vampire, Asher started photographing Kiss of the Vampire, which would be towards the end of 1962. Well, he was ill, he had to leave it, and Alan Hugh took over. Very few people know that it would have been a continuation of the gothic look. And then in 63, basically working outdoors and some Bray Studio stuff, he did the Crimson Blade or the Scarlet Blade, depending on what country you're looking at it in. And he was nominated for a BAFTA. Asher once in a letter to me mentioned something about he was shortlisted for an actual Academy Award. But I can't find any verification, but it would be pretty neat if it was true. Hammer did not shoot a film on the Bray Studios lot in 1964. I often thought that the end of the classic Hammer did end at the end of 1963. They, they flattened their back lot. It was just garbage. They just knocked everything down. They go back in 1965 and 66 and do some shooting, but to me it wasn't the classic golden era of Hammer. But Asher filmed The Secret of Blood Island. It was basically shot on sets they put up at uh, Black Park, which was attached to Pinewood Studios. It's the favorite exterior shooting place for all Hammer films. It's got the big lake, it's got the tall pines, it's got the ferns. You could probably do a film festival of just Black Park scenes. But he filmed that in 64, again worked with his brother in 1965, and then he was gone. There was a letter passed from Michael Kerr's to Anthony Hines saying, uh, how is Jack Asher and can we use him? Unfortunately, I don't have a date for it because Jack sent me the letter, but there was no date on it. But Hines said, so-and-so is a great composer. Lawrence Olivier is a great actor. But as we can't afford them, according to our current production plans, we can no longer afford Jack Asher. Great Michael Reed sort of replaced him. He was more along the lines of Asher than Arthur Grant. Arthur Grant was a professional, a journeyman, his films look wonderful. Dracula has risen from the grave, even with Freddie Francis's special lenses. They, they look fine, but you put, even Frankenstein must be destroyed, and look at that, and then you put The Brides of Dracula on. And you're looking at two different worlds. And look, one, we're looking at Hammerland. We're looking at a crew at the top of their game. I had trouble getting through the Jack Asher. He really didn't believe that what he had done amounted to anything. He had not worked since 1965 because his brother was a uh, director, Robert Asher. They'd done a series of comedies they did in those period. And after that, you never heard his name again. I tried to get in touch with Asher through the years. He did write a tribute to Terrence Fisher in 1980 with an issue of Little Shop of Horrors where he talks about the early years together, working together, how Terry supported his ideas for lighting that was totally different than anybody was shooting color lighting at the time. That's why the Hammer film stood out. It wasn't just flooded with light, which was, if I understand about Technicolor, and these weren't shot in Technicolor, they were all in process, required tremendous amount of lighting. But then finally I wrote to him again, this had been mid-1980s, and he said, my daughters got a hold of the letter. They have been badgering me saying, don't look down on your work. You did wonderful things, we're proud of you. He said, okay, I will talk about my time. I interviewed him for something like two hours. 
He sent me pictures of himself with his family. When I did my Curse of Frankenstein issue for Little Shop of Horrors number 21, he talked about what he thought about, how he lit it. It was brand new to Bray Studios. He looked at this and said, this is not a studio. These are rooms. How do I photograph this? But he did it. I stayed in touch on and off, but I really wasn't aware when he died. I got an email from one of his daughters and her son wanted to know more about his grandpa, Jack Asher. And so I made copies of all the interviews and articles I had published. Unfortunately, I had a bad habit of recording over audio cassettes, which meant I recorded over Jack Asher. I recorded over Terrence Fisher. I could take a moment here and just kick the crap out of myself, but that'll just waste time. But I did have an audio tape of Jack Asher talking about Curse of Frankenstein. I sent it to the daughter and the grandson. The daughter email, emails me back saying, I've been sitting here crying, listening to my dad's voice. David J. Miller, who was director of photography on Desperate Housewives and a great number of television, contacted me on Facebook and he said, do you have anything in Jack Asher? Do you ever have him talking? He is the man that made me want to get in the film industry. He is the man that made me want to become a lighting cameraman, a director of photography. I found my old cassette tape of him talking about Curse of Frankenstein. I sent it to him. He turned it over to one of the technicians on the film, he served television series he's currently working on. He made a digital copy of it and said, I'm listening to this. I sent him pictures of Asher working and I think he's going to be putting it on YouTube pretty soon. But even a half century later, the gorgeous, beautiful work of Jack Asher was still influencing people. I can help. Who are you? You sent for me, Dr. Van Helsing. Oh, thank God you've come. Thank God. Rise of Dracula was scored by Malcolm Williamson, who was Australian. He was born in Sydney in 1931 and came to England because he realised if he wanted a concert career it was probably more, more appropriate to start in London. He was a great uh, admirer of Elizabeth Lutyens who also scored for Hammer. She uh, did Never Take Sweets from a Stranger and Paranoiac with Oliver Reed. She was an advocate of the serial style of composition uh, which had been developed by Schoenberg and indeed uh, Malcolm Williamson did study serialism with her huge admirer of her work and her approach. I think he knew virtually every piece of music by Elizabeth Lutyens. Such a fan of her work was he. Uh, but he was also a fan of Olivier Messiaen, the French contemporary composer at that time. And he was interested in 
organ music, which Messiaen also was interested in. Messiaen was a, a devout Catholic. Williamson uh, became a Catholic. And I think there's a certain amount of parallels you can draw between his approach to writing for the organ with what Messiaen was doing for the organ as well. And it's not uh, without relevance, I think, that he uses the organ in The Brides of Dracula. And it sounds a little bit like some of the music he was writing for his organ concerto at the same time, roughly. This is 1960, Brides of Dracula. The organ concerto came out the following year, so I think it must have been in his mind. There's also a very small bit of piano writing in the film as well, particularly in the main title. And you think, oh, this could be a bit of a Malcolm Williamson piano concerto. He wrote three of those. Poor old Malcolm Williamson did suffer quite a bit from negative press. A lot of the critics regarded him as being superficial, trite, uh, not fitting into the establishment. Mind you, he gave as good as he got, and he did insult quite a lot of famous composers, um, including people like Benjamin Britten, which wasn't perhaps the best thing he could have done. So he kind of alienated himself a bit. And he was also a little bit frustrated with Hammer's approach to music. He said he wanted to do different things to what Hammer thought music should be about. He said, yes, Hammer were interested in harmonic experimentation, but the way that orchestration was done, too much brass, he wanted to get away from all that, perhaps. Philip Martel, who I used to talk to about this, um, said that he had trouble with Malcolm Williamson, particularly on a film called Crescendo, one of the psychological thrillers, which required a, a kind of potted concerto, a kind of Warsaw concerto type of thing. And I remember Philip saying to me, I went to see Malcolm and uh, he was writing this and I, it was too complicated. I said, no, think more what, like Warsaw Concerto, Malcolm. That's what we want. And it took Malcolm Williamson a long time to come up with something. And in the end, it wasn't ready for the launch. There was a little press launch for the film they were planning. And I think in the end, Philip said they just used a bit of Rachmaninoff on a tape recorder because the, the concerto, so-called, wasn't ready. Malcolm Williamson was often a bit late in his commissions. And of course, unfortunately, he became an alcoholic and that, um, that didn't do him any, any good at all. But he did write this rather interesting score for Brides of Dracula. He did meet James Bernard, who's famous for the most of the Hammer Draculas. He met him at the Benjamin Britten Memorial Service and they had a chat and Malcolm Williamson said, I do admire your writing for Hammer tremendously. He was a great admirer of it. He said, I, I wanted to try and do something like it, but at the same time inject my own voice as well. And what he does in this score, he orchestrates a bit differently from James. It's, it's not quite as resonant an orchestration as James. And what he does harmonically, you can hear right at the beginning of the main title, uh, sets the sort of fingerprint of the score. We'd have a tremolo to begin with, with the main vampire theme, which is that. Sometimes it's varied has two versions but nonetheless that's the sort of idea for, for, for vampires in the film and then he does this now that that particular sound are a build-up of intervals known as fourths not thirds which create nice comfortable sounds but fourths are more angular they sound more worrying and that's the main reason that the score sounds the way it does. He uses fourths a great deal. He also uses uh, whole tones as well, little scalic fragments that are not using semitones in any way, like this for instance. 
Debussy does that, does that quite a bit. It can sound exotic, but it can also sound alien and, and creepy. So we've got the vampire theme, fourths, and a whole tone scale right at the beginning. And then lots of fourths. Which really sounds frightening. It's a marvellous effect which he uses all the way through the film. So we've got those, those wonderful fourths. Then this sort of concertante writing for the piano that sounds a bit like a Malcolm Williamson piano concerto. And all those ideas are really setting up what the rest of the score is going to do. For instance, right at the end of the movie, but we hear it also before, we hear these fourths when uh, the Baron, Baron Meinster, played by David Peel, is struggling with Peter Cushing's Van Helsing. So we have a tremolo, and as the battle ensues, we just build up this amazing chord of fourths. It's really frightening. I think it goes back to a Russian composer at the beginning of the 20th century, Alexander Skriabin, who James was interested in too. James often used fourths in this way, particularly the Hound of the Baskervilles score, actually. Um, and Skriabin came up with a, a, what he called a mystic chord, which is a, a collection of different kinds of fourth, because you can have what's known as a perfect fourth, uh, and you can also have what's uh, was known as a tritone, or the devil in music, the augmented fourth. So there's an augmented fourth to begin with. There's a diminished fourth. There's an ordinary fourth, and another ordinary fourth on top. So it's a strange sort of mix of fourths. And that's Scriabin's mystic chord, which occurs in his late music, particularly an orchestral piece called Prometheus, which is just fantastic. Uh, so we've got this idea, which I think Malcolm Williamson is getting from Scriabin, of building up a, a, an amazing collection of fourths, which you can then repeat. You know, that kind of idea to create uh, punctuation in, in action. So that's a, that's a sort of fear motif, the fear motif. There's also an evil theme, a theme for all the evil things that happen in the film, uh, which is introduced, first of all, by this sort of fanfare-like theme. And the characteristic sound here is the relationship again of a tritone. The whole theme, the contour of the theme, moves through a tritone with a semitone, and semitones are also equally disturbing. So that's the evil theme. There's a love theme too, which is a little more tender. You're very beautiful. So you have come to help me, have you? Well, no one can do that, mademoiselle. 
No one can do that. It uses minor thirds, so they're more romantic. And then a fourth. And another fourth there. So it's a more gentle kind of sound. But it's because of those fourths, it sounds slightly less secure. You know, you're aware this is not the kind of love that you might want. <laughs> Monsieur Baron, you see, didn't I keep it to myself? I wanted so much to meet you again, so I took this opportunity of bringing the luggage that you left behind. I thought that you might need it. Of course, Marticia Hunt plays the Baroness in this film. Uh, right at the beginning of the film, when she's worried that this young girl she's brought into her castle is going to let loose her vampire son. She's wandering around the castle. We hear a, a sound which is full of tension in the strings. This is almost an octave, but not quite. It's a semitone away, so you, your teeth are on edge because of that. And then the clarinet, as she's walking up the stairs, will walk up with her. <laughs> Then she'll look out the window to see what's happening down below. Is her son still chained up? We hear this fear sound of fourths again. Which is a perfect way of representing her state of mind. So, you know, we've got... Uh, <clears throat> repeats of ideas that he introduces in the in the main title happening all the time. Don't worry. She can't harm you now. Now when Greta, uh, the servant of the Baroness, raises up the vampire girl played by Marie Devereux, we have this sort of organ sound which uh, it loosely is derived from what Messiaen was doing. It doesn't really sound like Messiaen, but similar sort of effects. And what does he do here? Well, he just makes clusters of notes, builds them up on the organ, and interestingly, what those notes are are two superimposed tritones. That's why they sound creepy. But he builds them up individually. And then you can just rise by chromatic incre uh, increment, like that. Very simple, but the timbre of the organ makes them sound very frightening. Stop! Whenever anyone is trying to flee or f run away, right at the beginning of the film, I think we hear this sort of sound. Again, these are consecutive tritones. have to have music for crucifixes as well. It's not all evil in this movie, so there's music for the power of good. Take him! And you have to bear in mind, I think, that Malcolm Williamson was a, a Catholic by this stage. You know, he believed in the power of good and evil, so uh, what does he do? Well, he has this theme for the cross. When uh, there's the big battle between the Baron and Van Helsing at the end, it's repeated three times to choreograph the three stages of the fight. Van Helsing will produce this cross, and we hear the theme for the first time. 
and then the Baron reacts and it's put in a slightly higher pitch and then uh, after a little bit of extra music the Baron throws a candlestick at Van Helsing and we hear it again. Ending on a strong, secure, major chord to suggest the power of, of good. So I think the characteristic harmony that's happening here is the sound of a fifth, which is a much more stable sound than the sound of a fourth. So that represents uh, the power of good. Uh, and again, we have lots of organ clusters for the vampires in this film. Sort of effects like this. This is when Andrea Melli is closing the curtains in her bedroom just before the Baron attacks her in her boudoir. On an organ, if you just do that, build these notes up, you get an amazing sense of unease because of the, the sort of dissonance of those semitones joining together. So this film is really interesting because it's got all the characteristics of a Hammer film that have been set up by Dracula and The Curse of Frankenstein. It's Terence Fisher really kind of polishing all his visual tricks and Bernard Robinson outdoing himself in set design. The only thing that's missing, strangely, is James Bernard's music. But I think what Malcolm Williamson does is uh, slightly change things, slightly vary the approach, and I think it works really well. to me five shillings, so I says to him, no, ten. I won't do it for less than ten, gov. Bodies don't come cheap these days. least not the French one. Well, labour ain't cheap neither. Here, you have a go. Did you hear that? A blooming peeler! success of the Hammer Dracula film in 1958, uh, Hammer were immediately under pressure to produce another vampire film involving Dracula and uh, the job of writing the script was given to Jimmy Sangster who produced the script which was called The Disciple of Dracula. This eventually was shelved and uh, it was rewritten then by uh, a man called Peter Bryan who used to work for Hammer and he basically substantially altered the script. Uh, that also didn't quite get to the final screenplay stage uh, because Peter Cushing, when approached to play the role of Van Helsing, objected to some of the dialogue. 
Uh, Peter Cushing, of course, uh, was well known not to particularly like the uh, dialogue of Jimmy Sangster. Christopher Lee said to uh, Peter Cushing once, um, I'm doing another vampire film for Hammer. He said, well, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Sangster wrote the script, and for some reason, I've got no lines in it. And Peter said, you said Jimmy Sangster wrote the script? Yeah. I well, said, be thankful for small mercies. You've got no lines. One saw the rise of Jimmy. You know, he broke away from production management. He wrote a script, he got accepted. I think told off by Michael for writing it underhand and not know, not them knowing, but got past that because it was a good script, he got accepted, and he became one of the principal writers for Hammer. Peter Cushing and Tony Hines, the producer, got together to discuss the script. And it was agreed that a third writer called Edward Percy, whom Peter Cushing had known and worked with before, uh, would alter some of the dialogue and make it uh, a little bit more in tune with the times, a sort of Victorian flavour to it. Peter was very difficult because he was, uh, he was terribly fussy and terribly worried about everything should be right. He loved a joke. In fact, he'd empty a restaurant. If he started laughing, people would leave, you know. He, he tried to joke so much. But he was fine. But he was fussy about his props, his costume and everything. He also liked to make his own notes about his clothing continuity. So, you know, on his, which is most unusual because that was my job to do. But, he, so, but anyway, he did it. And sometimes he would say, Pauline... I didn't write it down. Did I have my walking stick or my cane? I didn't put that down. And I would look at my notes and say yes or no accordingly. And also I took a picture. A costume department do this as well, you know, just of, of lapels and buttons. And you know, it's, say, it's best to have a photograph as well. So Polaroid cameras were used a lot in those days. Various other changes had been made since the original uh, Cushing uh, uh, script, uh, and that was with the Sangster version, uh, there was a character called Latour, who was to be the original vampire hunter, not Van Helsing. And this character does kind of crop up at the very beginning of the film, uh, when Michael Ripper is driving as the coachman at the very beginning of the film and stops for this log. Um, there's a character that emerges from the bushes, a rather mysterious individual, played by Michael Mulcaster. Uh, this is to be the original Latour character. Here he's made into a, um, somebody who's never quite identified as uh, being somebody in the employ of Baroness Meinster, but one seems to suspect that uh, this is uh, what he's in fact doing. Later on, uh, we see that Latour uh, is paid some money uh, once they arrive at the uh, inn, and quite clearly then he is in the employ of somebody whom, again, we presume to be the Baroness Meinster. Terence Fisher was a natural for Hammer's colour gothic horror films and he really nailed the early vampire and Frankenstein films. He started out as an editor and this was quite good because he did what they used to call cutting in the can which meant he didn't produce much waste footage of film which Hammer were very grateful for on their small budgets. He called himself an intuitive director Rather than coming on the set with fixed ideas, he liked to let the actors play out the scene in front of him and then just arrange them. Terry Fisher was really a darling, a very cool and director, always good mood. He directed me very firm but sweet at the same time and he gave you the impression you are free to do what you want, but he made... <laughs> 
exactly like he want. The Brides of Dracula shows Terence Fisher at the very height of his powers. Always hating the word horror, he preferred macabre. He had a good sense of humour. I remember every day at five o'clock, even in a very strong scene, he say, little more sadistic, please, and suddenly stop because it was tea time. Fisher had settled happily for a late career in Hammer Gothics. The script used elements of the earlier Sangster Dracula script, but despite the publicity team's promise of the most evil Dracula of all, Fisher's second vampire film didn't feature the Bram Stoker's count at all. The original title, Disciple of Dracula, more accurately reflects the film. Lee was unavailable, so instead, the film centred on an acolyte of the Count called Baron Meinster, played with boyish charm by David Peel. Peel was born in 1920, uh, attended RADA, and had uh, experience in acting in various plays, including working in Stratford-on-Avon. Uh, Peel himself, in fact, had uh, written various plays, uh, one of them being produced by Sir John Gielgud, a play called Landslide. He'd also written a play for television as well. He seemed to be very much a, a jobbing actor. His most famous role is undoubtedly that of Baron Meinster in The Brides of Dracula, and he gives an extremely good performance in that. The story has French schoolteacher Marianne Danielle spending the night at an isolated castle. Ignoring the warnings, Danielle, played by Yvonne Monlaw, naively releases the evil baron, setting him free to stalk the students at the local girls' school. Monlaw was hailed by Hammer as France's latest sex kitten and was displayed in all her charm in a series of publicity shots. One day my agent saw me in um, Women in Love, it's uh, a TV, in English TV, and producer of Brides saw me on that TV and, you know, they chose me. Maybe they think I was good on that part. In spite of my French accent, I was chosen to play on Brides. My first experience with Hammer. I was terrified you were going to throw yourself over the balcony. I assure you I wasn't. I can't. Come closer. Please, come closer. You see, I... I can't come to you. David had a beautiful voice. His appearance was interesting because uh, so different, the look was so different. Of, uh, from Christopher Lee, but I think uh, it gave um, a magnitude to, to his character, being blonde and uh, handsome like he was. In order to make him young, the brown-haired Peel had a, a blonde wig put on with a sort of kiss curl put on at the very front of that. He wears, unlike, say, Christopher Lee, a grey cloak rather than the black cloak. So he's a very different looking vampire. He's not the sort of formal uh, Lee or Lugosi sort of vampire. He's not the continental looking vampire. This is a much younger vampire. David Peel had certainly secrets, the secret of Dracula maybe, because he looked young and <laughs> very handsome, but he was older than he looked. 
The David Peel who comes down the stairs, uh, once Marianne has escaped the mother, and the mother is at the top of the stairs, uh, is a very different character indeed. Um, this is a much uh, harsher character, as he calls his mother, to come down the stairs, and he takes her away, and of course she is vampirised by him. Now David Peel himself um, was later interviewed um, in the 1970s, and uh, when he was interviewed, um, it was found that he was uh, perhaps not the tallest of gentlemen, and it is known, he himself agreed, that he had lifts put into his shoes at the time of making the film, so that he could equate a little bit more with Peter Cushing, who was, of course, around about the six-foot mark. Peel himself was down as five foot ten and a half in the Spotlight magazine of 1939. One wonders whether or not uh, Hammer were thinking very much of the American market, where, of course, young teenagers could go and see these horror films. In Britain, of course, in those days, this would uh, be rated an ex-certificate film and would limit the attendance uh, to 16 and above. Peel was promoted as something of a teenage heartthrob, but his boyish good looks belied his 40 years of age. The press's description of the actor as a confirmed bachelor was recognised code that few needed spelled out. We had fun all the time because the makeup of David Peel, by example, you know, for the role he used to wear two big um, fangs like that, phosphorescent um, contact lenses. And so we 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 laughing because sometimes uh, he nearly swallowed the fangs and uh, it was fun. Also in the cast was the venerable character actress Martita Hunt, playing Baroness Meinster, doomed by her own son. very good to play the Baroness <laughs> and uh, she was a great actress she learned me a lot also. Martita Hunt herself was quite a character I remember John Pevel was the first I was second and John asked me to go and bring Martita to the set I go upstairs knock on the door is Hunt Not, no answer a little bit louder Miss Hunt, no answer. Tried furtively to try the doorknob, wouldn't give, locked. Martita, you in there? Nothing. Went downstairs, got up the train pipe, it's only a one story, looked in the window, and there she is, a pair of knickers, cross legged on the bed in a yoga position, in a trance. So I nearly fell off the train, but anyway, I came down, went on the set. John, where is she? She's she's in a trance, locked in her room. What do you mean she's in a trance, locked in her room? I can't get access, I can't wake her up. She's in a trance. Come on, come with me. So we, off we go, go. I said, you have to go up that drain pipe and look at that window. See your joke? I said, no, I'm not. Up the drain pipe. And he looks at him. My God, he says. Have you ever seen two fried eggs nailed to a wall? <laughs> That's all he could say. afraid she's dead what have you done she's dead and he's free <laughs> the cackling frida jackson 
playing the family servant, creates one of the film's most memorable sequences of the birth of a fledgling bloodsucker. Frederick Jackson also looks very sweet in life and uh, we we played together on Jouet, on s'amusait. I tried to learn her French, little French. It was difficult. Like it is difficult for me speaking English because I forget all my English now. The part of uh, Herr Lang was played by Henry Oscar. Now Henry Oscar had met Peter Cushing in the early 1940s when Cushing had returned from America and had joined ENSA. It was Oscar who had interviewed Cushing and given him some work. And so one rather feels that when The Brides of Dracula came along, uh, there was a reciprocation of this kindness. Uh, for it was Cushing who mentioned Henry Oscar for the possible role of Hairline, and Tony Hines, uh, knowing of Henry Oscar, had agreed. And so the role of Hairline was given to uh, Henry Oscar. You're a most obedient servant, always. When Hammer first moved to Bray Studios, it was just an old manor house, and they shot the films inside the rooms and on the grounds. This meant that the sets were makeshift, they weren't soundproofed, so when they were filming they couldn't apparently flush the toilet in the upstairs of the house. Gradually they felt the need for, more, for proper stage space and sound stages, and over the years they developed four stages and a back lot, and they used all of these for The Brides of Dracula. Bernard Robinson was the art director, and as far as I'm concerned he was the real hero of Hammer. He could build the most wonderful sets for Tuppence Hapney, I mean, and all those sets that he built were, were, were marvellous sets. And a darling man he was too. I worked with Bernard Robinson and we seemed to click together and we got on very well. Uh, and it kind of ghosted him in a sense and he became my mentor to a point when we could be apart from each other, but you would never notice the join in, in the end product. Tom was a very good art director, and uh, he was able to convey Bernard's ideas very well. Bernard would always convey his own ideas very well too, but uh, Don was a very good art director in transposing his ideas to the drawing board, draftsman, to the workshop, to building of the sets and uh, was always on hand, always on the set. Don was very much up behind me. He whispered, you're okay, you're doing it, you're doing it right, you're doing it right. Don't listen to the old bugger. <laughs> but you know, he's, no, he's a good man, he's a good art director. Stage one was Hammer's biggest sound stage, and that's where they put their biggest sets. And this is where you find the lovely ornate hall and stairs of Chateau Meinster. Now in order to save on budget, what Bernard Robinson, his art director, Don Mingay, tended to do was to revamp the sets, pardon the pun, and disguise them slightly for another area of the film. He was a very economical person by nature, and he extended that to the work he did for films. Uh, if he could save them money, he did. Bernard Robinson was a very creative man, the production designer, and he would renovate stroke redress certain sets, be it exterior or interior, 
um, as opposed to going from scratch. So one had sets almost being re-renovated. So the amount of preparation time on a film would be, say, could be two weeks, three weeks. When I was making that monster for The Brides of Dracula, I went to Bernard and said, I'm awfully sorry, I'm so slow on this, um, much slower than a man would have been. Uh, I'm afraid I'm wrecking your budget. And he said, no, I allowed in the budget for the fact that you would be slow. So I didn't have anything really to do with, with budgeting, apart from being conscious if I was, uh, I didn't like to waste time. Stage two was built on the side of the house, and this was a brick stage. So this tended to be the stage in which they put all their fire scenes. So this is where they built the lower part of the windmill for their fantastic fiery finale. Peter Cushing was very energetic, yes. Fighting all the time with David Peel, it was a dangerous sequence, but he was not shy to do that. I think Peter was quite a fit man, and if he wasn't putting himself in danger, he would try to do it himself. The company would have a stunt double standing by, ready, dressed as him, ready to substitute for anything that was dangerous. So Peter did like to do things himself if he could. I think generally Peter would be able to take on action segments within his role, but with limitations. If it was just over a bit over the top, then maybe by two cuts. One was him and one was a stunt double. I remember a sequence we had on a very high platform at the old mill surrounded by flames and we were obliged to stay there for a while. Ah, we were frightened to fall down. But two years before, I was on a boat. It was real. Um, the boat was in fire and I was badly burnt. I was happy to forget all those things doing that for cinema. Stage three was a makeshift stage. It was actually the converted ballroom on the front of the house that faced the Thames. So the problem with this, therefore, is that it was still not soundproofed. So they had big problems when they were filming with the planes going ahead to nearby Heathrow and the boats on the River Thames. It was rectangular in shape, and this is the set where they usually put their inns. And this is what happened in Bride of Dracula. The inset was put there. Welcome to the running boar, Fräulein. Thank you. Our bill of fare is simple, but I think you'll find it good. Hot goulash, a dish of sauerkraut, and our own red wine from the valley. On the back lot, they built a village square, and that's where you see the inn. Now that set, rather than taking it down after the film was left up, added to over the years, and you see it in an enormous lot of Hammer's uh, films, up until the Gorgon in 1963, when they finally took it down. The camera crew on The Brides of Dracula was the same camera crew they had used on Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula and The Mummy. This consisted of director of photography Jack Asher, camera operator Len Harris and his focus puller Harry Oakes. Now Jack Asher was a perfectionist. He, people used to say he painted with light. He would use coloured gels over the lamps. He would use lots of different lamps to highlight separate little bits of things on the sets. Unfortunately, he was quite slow and methodical in this, and to hammer time is money, and over time they replaced him for the more commercial Arthur Grant. 
Arthur Grant superseded Jack Asher mainly because he was more economical. Uh, uh, he didn't spend the time that Jack did and therefore it was cheaper to employ um, Arthur Grant. And I'm not knocking him, he was a good cameraman, uh, but um, uh, he let himself be rushed, whereas um, um, uh, Jack Asher wouldn't. Jack Asher was a very good director of photography, and in fact one of the films he made for Hammer just before Hammer dropped him was an adventure film called The Scarlet Blade, and for that film he was nominated for his colour photography for a BAFTA. Interestingly enough, uh, with regard to The Brides of Dracula, the usual composer, James Bernard, was not called upon to uh, produce the music for that film. And instead, uh, Malcolm Williamson, who was a known classical composer, uh, produced the score. Uh, the score for Brides, uh, unlike uh, the James Bernard sort of scores, uh, lacked lots of melody. It's a very dissonant sort of score and yet it uh, tunes in very well with the, the action all the way through. Sculptor and modeler Margaret Robinson created the stone griffins you see decorating the hall and stairs of Chateau Meister. The largest pair stood at 17 feet. Now the unions at Bray were very strict as to who could handle what materials. Normally uh, at that time it was men who did the modelling and um, the labourer was longing to put some of the clay onto the wire netting for me. But he knew he mustn't t touch the clay. He could bring it to me, but he mustn't put any on for me. But he would have had the strength to slap a lot on and leave me to um, tinker with it. But uh, the union would have been out if he'd... Uh, laid a finger on the, on the modelling. For those freestanding models, they had to have a wooden armature. If the armature was up to nine foot, then Margaret was allowed to make it. There's a system of making armatures to support the clay. Uh, up to nine feet, uh, the sculptor makes the armature. From nine to 12 feet, the um, plasterers uh, make the uh, the framework and over 12 feet the carpenters have to make it because then the safety factor comes in and it has to be people who really know their job and know how strong they've got to make the framework in order not to have a, a monstrous um, piece of sculpture collapsing and killing somebody. Now Hammer loved these griffins because they appeared in further films. They appeared on the hall and stairs of Chateau Ravner in Kiss of the Vampire in 1962 and also in the staircase of Castle Karnstein in Lust for a Vampire in 1970. Now at the climax of Peter Bryan's draft for Brides of Dracula, Van Helsing uses the dark arts to issue forth a swarm of vampire bats that kills Baron Meinster so they needed some bats. And they turned to Margaret Robinson, who was the wife of production designer Bernard Robinson. She'd previously made the mask of the Hound in The Hound of the Baskervilles. So she designed two prototype bats. One she took an awful lot of time about, and the other one she just threw together rather quickly. She gave them to special effects wizard Les Bowie. The lone bat you actually see in the film was not one of the ones that was designed by Margaret. This was actually designed by special effects 
supervisor, Sid Pearson. Now, Margaret was always annoyed because apparently they lost the, what she called the best bat, the one that she took ages doing, and she only got the second best bat back. But the bats, apparently, they were made, the, the wings were made of latex. She used velvety, furry material to make the body. And she modelled them on the grotesque hognose bat because she felt that that was the bat that really looked evil and nasty. Whereas a lot of the bigger bats that you would think they would probably use because these bats were big have quite mild faces, almost like foxes. So she's used the hognose bat instead. The second best bat has lived to today. And here is a picture of it now. Unfortunately, you can see all the latex has, has gone and just leaves this wretched poor little thing which I bought at an auction at one of Don Fernie's Bray Studios events and poor old Margaret was really put out because she got more money for that on the day than her art and she's a very good artist. Now this original ending was another one of the areas in the script which Cushing disliked. He didn't think Van Helsing would use the dark arts to attack the vampires. He's been pulling these crucifixes and holy water out throughout the rest of the, the series. He wouldn't use the dark arts. So in the end, they got rid of that sequence to the sequence you now see, where it just throws holy water in Baron Meinster's face. Now, in Britain, The Bride to Dracula was to be an ex-certificate film. Uh, the result was that those of 16 and above only could see it. And one can't help feeling by promoting the sort of uh, youthful nature of the Baron Meinster uh, that uh, perhaps Hammer had an idea to look at the youth in America, where of course much younger children could go and see these films. They were seen in a very sort of different light. Even though some of the material in The Brides of Dracula is uh, perhaps pretty adult, and it certainly got through the censor. For example, when uh, the Baron bites his mother, there has been a suggestion that there is something of the Oedipus complex in this. Uh, you know, what is the relation between these two? Uh, also, when Gina um, comes out of the coffin, and advances towards Marianne, she talks about wanting to hug her, to kiss her, and uh, there was felt to be an underlying uh, lesbianism in this. And quite clearly the um, BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, were aware of this. However, they did let it go through. One of the things I think about The Bride to Dracula that was a little bit unusual is that the film was very well underway before the BBFC got really to see the script. And perhaps as a result of that, uh, many of the things that they might have questioned, and they certainly questioned when it came to the original Dracula, they were allowed through. So the film has a little bit of adult content that uh, perhaps um, was not originally um, uh, intended. the premiere of The Brides of Dracula, the stars turned up in a coach, uh, both Peter Cushing attending and Yvonne Monleur. I saw the picture many times in England, the premiere, marvellously done, you know. We were in a calèche with a lot of women dressed like vampires with the famous fangs and Peter Cushing was my cavalier. And after in France, it was a big success. It was for a premiere also in Paris. Now, the film received um, sort of lukewarm responses from the critics of the time, uh, but Hammer would have been pleased, as would Universal, for it was a success financially. The result of their efforts is arguably the finest of Hammer's horror movies. It looks superb. 
Jack Ash's photography was never better, the acting is flawless, and, script aside, it offers a lingering glimpse into a lush, erotic, and chilling twilight world that Hammer would never quite recreate. But the company did not allow the vampire to rest for long. <laughs> Christopher Lee, at one stage, uh, was thought that he might reprise his role of Dracula at the very end of the film, but Lee himself had stated that, uh, in fact, he was never asked to do that particular role. And there's also a belief that, um, at the same time, uh, Anthony Hines and some of the producers uh, were a little bit unhappy with the fact that they had to deal with John Redway, who was Lee's um, agent at the time, who was asking for a little bit more money all the time. So Brian Lawrence is uh, the person apparently who said, well, can we in fact get rid of uh, Dracula from the script and just simply deal with uh, one of his disciples, uh, which of course would be a, a much cheaper option. Court, which is a Victorian folly, 1859, I think it was built for Richard Hall Say, who was the sheriff of Berkshire at the time. You know, it looks very familiar, doesn't it? Because obviously we've seen it in about, I don't know, 200 movies, I think it's been in. Yeah, many, many films. People, people think that they know all the films that this house has been You in. couldn't, even I don't know. I mean, I've seen it in so many films. And, you know, you'll just be watching something, an old TV show like The, the Avengers or something, or a New Avengers, and, you know, you'll look at it and think, oh, God, that's Oakley Court again, you know. It's yeah. been in so many, and one of my favourites, House in Nightmare Park, Frankie Howard, you know, which is, which is a classic, and Hammer used it so many times. And of course, Hammer were based here in the early days, pre-Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly, and I, what I've read up on the history of Oakley Court, as I say, it was owned by this guy, Sheriff of Berkshire, and in 1919, um, it was bought by, I think, a French guy called uh, Ernest Olivier, and uh, he paid 27,000 for this uh, Gothic pile, which seems, a bargain but it was a lot of money in those days and uh, he used to I think he rented it to Hammer and uh, they shot their first five movies here. Your Man in Black, Your Lady Craves Excitement, these were the ones that were all shot inside as well because their later movies it often turns up as exteriors only. But I think it's interesting just to make that distinction between what's actually shot inside and what's actually just the outside of it. And of course thing that brings us here specifically today is that Amicus used this for Another Screaming Starts, which is mm. essentially Amicus's own gothic horror in the Hammer style, isn't it? Yeah, well, Amicus were, of course, mainly known for their modern day movies, not their sort of the gothic stuff. So it's unusual for Amicus to do a, a gothic. I think Another Screaming Starts was probably their most expensive movie. Uh, I and think. Done yeah. at the time when Hammer actually moving away from the gothic. Yeah, it seems strange to me. And also, the, the as I say, I always think the title is a strange title for a gothic film because now the screaming starts, um, sounds contemporary. Yeah. And it, was, it came about because Milton Subotsky um, bought the rights to Harlan Ellison's famous story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And there was a big legal wrangle because Ellison 
discovered it, that his agent had sold it and the agent had to claw the rights back. He didn't want it just used as a title. Yeah, did they buy it just for the title? They bought it just for the title and of course that, that was, so there was a big legal wrangle and Max Rosenberg, who was Milton Sabotsky's partner, you know, he wanted to be very bullish about it and take it all to court, but eventually it got dropped and they used it, the title that they ended up with. But it is a very contemporary title for a gothic movie. And I think the budget was around £350,000, which when you think the Doctor Terrors, I mean, it was some years beforehand, cost 100000 105000 And even their Daleks movies didn't cost that much, you know, compared to this. So for what it was, it was, it was very expensive. What a lovely old house. It was built by my ancestors. It was 300 years ago. I believe the interiors were done at Shepperton mainly, because yeah. most of the shots so you see people sitting in the car park in between scenes. So it's only really, particularly the opening scene of it, where you know you see it from. We'll see from actually, I think it would be across the river the, here that you see the uh, coach coming along with this view of the house from uh, from here, uh, and then after the beautiful music, because there's lots of lovely music in the film, if I remember rightly, you see the coach coming up outside the front entrance, which we'll probably have a look at in a minute. You know, so you can easily recognise that. That's easily spotable. You know, I spoke to Renee Glynn, who's a continuity girl. She was telling me that um, you know, they stayed here quite a lot while they were making the films. But she always says she remembers the place as being, you know, the ceilings, you know, leaking water and everything, and it is in a really bad state of disrepair. And she also remembers, I remember her saying to me that this guy, Ernest Olivier, who was, I think it was the Turkish consul to Monte Carlo. <laughs> that was his job. Um, and what happened was um, when he bought the place, um, and, you know, he, he, he started running out of money. So he was very happy to rent it out to Hammer. And I believe what happened, uh, well, I said to Renee Glynn, you know, so did you ever see this guy? She goes, yeah, he used to be wandering around, you know, just like, you know, like, imagine it, like the parent at a party where yeah. it's all got rather out of control, but sort of shaking his head really. And um, she said no one really talked much to him, <laughs> but he was making money out of, out of renting it. And a popular place for weddings, I believe. It is, yeah, yeah, exactly. The <laughs> yes, yeah. um, interesting fact is, on our wedding night, we had the room which is used in Theatre of Blood. Remember the scene where um, Arthur Lowe, our dear old dad's army, Arthur Lowe, <laughs> gets his head separated from his body in the night, and uh, the maid comes in and the head rolls off the pillow. Yeah. Uh, and that's the room. Yeah, and that must be one of the few locations where they've used the interior, but not yeah. the exterior. They didn't use the exterior on that one. That's a strange one, that. I don't know why. Right, these are, these are some of the films that are made here. Man in Black, Lady Crowsdown, The Curse of Frankenstein, obviously Dracula, Siege of the Saxons, Old Dark House, Evil of Frankenstein, Nightmare, you know, the old hammer, uh, Scarlet Blade, Die Monster Dial, I remember that one. Apparently Projected Man was shot here as well. Yeah, so the Reptile and the Plague of Zombies famously, because they use a lot of the, you know, the, the, when he breaks into the house through the back window, right? It was Carfax Abbey in Dunkirk. Dan Dirty's Dracula, and The Hound of the Baskervilles, but it was the Pete and Doug one. Yeah. That, which is a guilty pleasure if ever there's any. And the mutations, remember the mutations? Yeah, I've no idea what they would have shot the mutations. I can't think what they shot them. Murder by death, murder by decree. And the Wildcats and St. Trinians. And of course, of the films that are celebrated for being shot inside here, when we talk about 
that the most famous film shot inside is Rocky Horror mm. Picture Show, which um, I believe they still have pilgrimages from Rocky Horror fans. And they used uh, a lot of the rooms inside were, were employed in that film, which is unusual for a latter day you know, mm. thing. Another film that, that has a big connection with this uh, place is uh, Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny and Gurley, or Gurley as it's known in, in America. They have, I believe every year, they have a gathering of people here to watch the film. I think one of the most striking uses of Oakley Court was also is in um, Vampires, which is, you know, famously uh, yeah, the Hazaras classic. I'm wondering, is the caravan in that film actually in the grounds or not? This is the Wall of Horrors, Curse of Frankenstein, famously, of course. Although that's a picture from Frankenstein must be destroyed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, spotted that man, yeah. <laughs> so this obviously is a new one, the theory of everything. That was Arthur Six, murder, she said. Yeah, great poster of Dracula. Camera <laughs> nightmare as well, so I mean, they were shooting the psycho films there too. Yep, and this is, a, and, and Bride. Um, Rather and unfortunate old dark house poster. This is from the 1932. This is a James Well Universal uh, version, of course, which was shot at Universal Studios. It was the Hammer version. Yeah, the William Castle. They're, they're a collaboration with William Castle. This is the famous billiard room which was used in um, uh, Gurley, Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny, and Gurley. Mm. I believe, I might be mistaken, but I believe when they have these sort of annual Gurley days down here to celebrate the film um, and they you know, drag up some of the old actors and actresses. Um, that they use this to screen um, the movie and <laughs> they set a thing up here and show it. The strange thing about Amicus is, you know, when you think about Hammer films, you think Hammer films, you know, people probably think, a lot of people probably think, oh, this was their headquarters, you know, they lived in this wonderful old house or, or they had a gothic castle somewhere at Bray. Um, but when you, people have um, talked about Amicus have said that Amicus Studios was a little porter cabin the company's headquarters are in one of a row of wooden huts at Shepparton. The two men who run Amicus are Max J. Rosenberg and his partner, Milton Subotsky, a New Yorker who now lives in England. We have no office in London. We don't see any need for it. We're a working company, constantly making films, and therefore no large overheads that are passed on to the people who finance the films. Yeah, they can maintain their costs well. It's why something like, and now the screaming starts is unusual for them, is because it's a full-length movie that could probably have been done as one of their short stories. Um, but of course, all their short stories were not, didn't have all the gothic trappings, so they needed to get the best value out of the money. And then the Amicus, clever thing about Amicus, of course, they got a lot of box office stars for next to nothing because they only got them in for one day, and uh, so they had a fantastic marquee value for very little money. One of the things I find interesting about Never Screaming Stars is they made it in 1973. 
Uh, Hammer was kind of getting out of the Gothic at that point, pretty much getting out of filmmaking almost, not by choice, but by the way things happened. Yeah. Um, and it's probably near the end of Amicus' horror period. They did The Beast Must Die mm -hmm. after that. Yeah. But then they moved on to The Land of Time Forgotten mm -hmm. and films like that. But you kind of thought maybe Subotsky was was slightly happier with because they were family entertainment films and he was very much interested in doing that kind of thing, wasn't he? He was, you know, I, I think he would have liked to have made, I think he would have been quite a home in today's world where horror is PG-13, yeah. you know, he'd love to have done that. Yeah, he was never going to fit with that kind of 70s horror scene, was he? No, no. Although, you know, to be, to be fair, Another Screaming Spots is actually quite, has got, got some decent scares and it brings back their famous um, hand from uh, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. I think it's the same hand. It's got the same seam down the side of it. But yeah, you're right. It does seem strange that um, because normally, you know, they had their own. If you look at what distinguishes the Amicus films from the Hammer films, apart from the, you know, the, the compendium horrors, they had their most success with contemporary horrors like Scream and Scream Again. Which, of course, famously, Sabotsky didn't understand. No. Why was it hit? You know. He didn't. He didn't get it at all. And Sabotsky was, uh, you know, quite enamoured of Ben Griffin, the book, and you know, I think they thought they were going to have a big hit with, you know, but the money they spent was too much at a time when, if you think 73, 74 was The Exorcist was out, and horror films were becoming contemporary, and you know, again, they had a very good cast and they had an amazing setting, and you know, the sets were very impressive for an Amicus film. But it, it's just a one-off, it just fits uneasily in with a lot of the other Amicus output because it is Amicus trying to be Hammer at a time when even Hammer didn't want to be Hammer. <laughs> you know, around here is everything you need. You've got Brace Studios not far away. Here we are, Brace Studios, or what's left of it. The studio's been demolished, so it's not going to be standing for much longer. No, but it's turning a... some of it into a private residence, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. The rest of it's been taken down. Yeah, it's sad, really. So many iconic films made here, and you know, you think about that the, the, old graveyard set from Plague of the Zombies and well, you know, <laughs> Revenge of Frankenstein and The Reptile, all, all the familiar sites, and of course when they shot the Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Rasputin the Mad Monk, back to back, to back here. And their most famous years were spent here. You know, Bray was mainly the home of Hammer, but uh, Amicus films, uh, they, they used to shoot all over the place, but they, they did use a lot of locations, particularly for now, and now the screaming starts, they did a lot in Windsor. And they used Windsor a lot for their other movies as well. I mean, House That Drip Blood, for example. So one of the other Amicus classics that was shot around here was Asylum. Yeah. In the big house that we see at the beginning of Asylum where everything takes place, the asylum itself, yeah. is a couple of miles down the road, so we're going to see if we can have a look at it. thing of course is that we have Bray here yeah. and then just down here yeah. for about half a mile yeah. 
is oakley cut yeah so yeah it's all very close together and you can see how these two things would bleed in together in production you could literally mm. go from one to the other if you needed an exterior shot Thank you.